0: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. Pam Tripaldi's father received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in 2007. Tripaldi served as her father's primary caregiver for the final four years of his life, during which he received care at several different hospitals. During these hospitalizations, she encountered near-miss patient safety events in which staff did not recognize her father's dementia. Tripaldi contacted the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority in 2015 and recounted examples of situations in which hospital staff either obtained inaccurate information from her father or failed to provide the assistance necessary to support her father in activities of daily living, such as feeding himself. The authority investigated and issued an analysis of whether health care providers not recognizing or knowing a patient is being treated uh, or has been diagnosed with dementia and how they should be treated. Our guest to talk about this analysis is Michelle File, senior patient safety analyst with the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. Ms. File, welcome to the program.
1: Hi. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I should mention that, that introduction uh, that, that I actually used the, the first few sentences of your analysis because it explained it perfectly. So thank you for that. Well, but, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment about this, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, healthcare providers, doctors not recognizing when a patient being treated for another condition or illness, that they have missed Alzheimer's or dementia. How often is this occurring?
1: Well, you know, there's been research to show that they estimate even in outpatient offices, you know, outside of the hospital, normal, um, any kind of a health checkup visit for older adults, the diagnosis can be missed almost two-thirds of the time into up up to uh, 67% of individuals. And it's not always just because of the healthcare care provider um, being unaware of those signs and symptoms and not screening. It could be, you know, denial on the part of the patient and the family themselves. A lot of people don't recognize these signs of dementia.
0: Okay. Now I want to go back to that 67%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's something that I'm sure some eyebrows were raised out there when they heard that statistic. 67% of what now?
1: Sixty-seven percent of older adults, usually um, they do these studies in adults over the age of 65 to see, you know, how many people are getting the diagnosis, how many people do we think are having the diagnosis missed, because um, the prevalence of dementia rises as you get older. Um, You know, they've done studies a lot with Alzheimer's patients. And Alzheimer's is the most prevalent form of dementia. Um, There are other kinds of dementia, but Alzheimer's consists of 60 to 80% of the diagnoses that are out there. So for Alzheimer's patients, um, they estimate that one in every 100 patients at the age of 65 probably has a diagnosis, and it just goes up from there. So by the age of 85, uh, they estimate about a third of adults age 85 and older have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease Um, and then you know the studies that I'm referring to are kind of observational studies or record review where they look to see well okay if this is the prevalence how many people do we think are missing the diagnosis in a typical outpatient encounter
0: and we should also mention that and you do mention this in your analysis that uh, as Pennsylvania's population is getting older uh, that The number of patients diagnosed with dementia is expected to double within the next 19 to 20 years, correct?
1: Correct. When you think about just the sheer number of people in that age group, you know, over age 65 and then over age 85, um, you know, the two that I mentioned, it's just because that population is growing. So the prevalence. Um, they estimate is going to stay about the same, you know, one out of every 100 adults age 65 up to one out of every three age 85 or older. But there's going to be so many more people in those age groups. That's why the number of people who receive this diagnosis is going to, you know, double, triple. It's just going to continue to grow as we successfully treat all our other medical conditions and people live longer.
0: So. In your analysis, now you looked over a nine-year period, uh, 2005 to 2014, uh, you found more than 3,700 safety events. How do you define a safety event?
1: Well, sure, I'd like to explain. I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for 20 years, and for the past four years, I've been working for the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. We're an agency that was created by law in Pennsylvania in 2002, and our agency exists Separate from our Department of Health, uh, we're an agency that, by law, has to receive reports of events that harm patients in Pennsylvania hospitals, birthing centers, abortion facilities. We even get infection reports from nursing homes as part of this law. So a patient safety event is defined by law as um, any event that could harm a patient. We even collect um, reports of incidents or near misses, which I know I mentioned in our article, um, any event that could harm a patient, either temporarily or permanently. So we receive reports for all sorts of events occurring in hospitals, from infections to falls to errors during procedures. So this is this rich database of information that we have in Pennsylvania, and um, our reporting system has been collecting these reports since 2004. So when I um, you know, re- uh, heard of this concern from Pam Tripaldi, we said at the authority, let's look in our database to see, you know, what kind of events are being reported for any reason that involve patients with dementia. So it was actually 10 years of reports um, that I looked at um, and found, you know, almost 4,000 reports that just mentioned that a patient with dementia was involved. And then from there, I looked more closely to see if we had anything similar to the concerns that Pam raised with us.
0: So, again, I'll go back to my original question. How do you define a safety event?
1: Um, Well, a safety event, again, is anything that happens in the course of the clinical care of a patient that, um, you know, they weren't expecting. That Any prudent patient would not expect one of these events to occur while they were in the hospital. So it can be anything that occurs in the hospital that's uh, unexpected and that results or could has the potential to result in harm to that patient.
0: But in these 3,700 plus cases, uh, you're talking about those that just related to those uh, patients who had dementia.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. When a when a healthcare provider reports an event to us, first of all, they'll select the event type. They'll they'll tell us ultimately what is the main thing that happened: uh, an error in a procedure, a complication, a fall, skin integrity, but. After we look at what the overall event outcome was, we look at the narratives, and they tell us a brief story about, you know, what exactly happened in this case. So for my analysis, um, in this case, I looked at all those stories, those little narratives, to see who said these things were happening to patients with dementia. Um, That's the only way we could find these events, is by searching these stories for the word dementia or Alzheimer or confused Um, And that's how I located almost 4,000 reports for any sorts of events happening for patients with dementia.
0: Now, the analysis also concluded that there were 63 near misses. What's a near miss?
1: Well, a near miss would be in that category of an event that had the potential to harm a patient, but didn't actually result in any patient harm. So, uh, you know, there are reporting systems in other states, Um, I'll use Minnesota as an example, Um, where they only require the reporting of the events that harm patients. But in Pennsylvania, the MCARE law, that's the Medical Care Availability and Reduction of Error Act of 2002, our law says that we also want to hear about those near misses, those incidents, those events that could harm patients but don't necessarily result in harm because we believe that we can learn a lot from those events as well. And that's exactly what um, we've been trying to do now for you know what what is it? it's a, almost 15 years over 15 years
0: so those 10 years were there any patients who were harmed because uh, a healthcare provider didn't identify the patient had been diagnosed with dementia
1: well in our reporting system no And, um, you know, we we do know patient safety professionals recognize that there's a limit to what we can learn from patient safety event reporting. So just because we didn't find an event showing that, you know, harm resulted as one of these encounters where they missed the diagnosis, it doesn't mean that it it didn't happen. Um, So we're limited by the information that gets reported to the system. So um, what we were able to find were 63 events similar to what Pam described, and and that's uh, situations in which healthcare professionals obviously didn't recognize the patient had dementia. So So.
0: maybe in in the report, you do list several examples. What are some examples of some near misses or uh, some of these uh, safety events?
1: Well, you know, the most concerning ones, in my opinion, are... um, the events that describe that a patient clearly has cognitive impairment, they have dementia, and they're in the hospital, and someone has asked them to consent for a procedure, an invasive procedure or a surgical procedure, and they're about to proceed with the procedure when someone you know stops the line and says, "Whoa, well, you know, should we have asked this person?" to consent for this. I'm not sure that they really are able to. Don't they have dementia? I think they may be, maybe they do, so it's unclear, but you know, members of the team have proceeded um, and asked that person to provide consent when it wasn't obvious that they really could. Now, in some situations, patients with dementia can provide consent or assent, um, but when the stakes are high, when you have a procedure that's invasive um, any kind of operative procedure, you have to have a higher standard that you hold yourself to when you're assessing whether the patient has the you know, decision-making capacity and ability to provide consent. So our, in our events, I would say, again, the most concerning ones to me were ones in which someone was concerned, a family member or a staff member, and they stopped the line and said, whoa, you know, is this really the person that should have consented to this?
0: Yeah, and Pam Tripaldi, uh, who we mentioned her name several times and brought this to your attention and asked the question, uh, she gave an example that uh, her father was asked whether he had diabetes. And uh, she, Pam, was just within earshot, and uh, he, the, the, her father, said, "No, he didn't." Mm-hmm. And Pam overheard the conversation and jumped up and said, "Yes, he does," which is a good example of um, you know someone who has been diagnosed with di- dementia not remembering their medical history.
1: Right, and um, in the article, I go on in the discussion um, to talk about the reasons why we miss this. Um, And, you know, her father fits the profile of a person who is very highly educated and highly functioning for most of his life. And especially in those people, it's hard to tell that there's been a cognitive change, especially when you don't know the person. So Pam, obviously, is his daughter, and and she felt that she knew him better than he knew himself at that point. And um, if a, a staff member is unfamiliar with the patient, and hasn't had a chance to touch base with other care providers who know the patient very well, it, you can see how it would be easy to walk into a patient's room and have no idea that they have dementia and just start having these conversations. Um, so in the example Pam provided, um, she wasn't sure why that person was asking her dad about the insulin pump, and it turns out that this was a radiology technician who was just thinking ahead and thinking about the procedure he was going to have and thinking, hmm, Uh, that we we really can't let anyone into, I I think it might have been an MRI machine, could have been uh, anything else, but um, they didn't want any device to show up on the test that they were going to do. So this person, their way of screening for that was just to ask the patient, hey, do you have diabetes? Thinking, oh, I'm going to get to that question about the, the insulin pump later if I just start asking him about diabetes. So it could have been just um, that individual's um, idea for a way to screen for these things, a way to have a conversation with a patient. But to Pam, who was standing outside the room within earshot, she's thinking, wait a second, who is that person and why are they asking my dad that question? And don't, you know. <laughs> so she could see the potential for something seriously wrong to happen if these are the kinds of questions that are being asked all of the time of her father, especially when she's not there. And what if they ask a question that he gives the wrong answer to and it results in something, you know, serious happening to him and harming him. So, yeah, that was her
0: concern. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Michelle File, a Senior Patient Safety Analyst with the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. We're discussing doctors not recognizing dementia in patients they're treating. And I should mention that uh, today's program is part of WITF's Transforming Health Project. To learn more plus a deeper look at the changing tide of healthcare. Check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I have a quick question for you about uh, Pam. Uh, We've mentioned her name several times throughout the program, Pam Tripaldi from uh, Northampton County. Uh, Does the authority often conduct an analysis or an investigation with uh, just one suggestion?
1: Um, Well, it's becoming more commonplace, I would say, in the last several years. Um, There are a team of us who are analyzing the events that are reported to us daily, and um, if we notice anything concerning, we might dive deeper and analyze the events just based on what we're seeing come across in the reports. But there have been some occasions in the past few years where um, someone has contacted the authority either through our patient safety liaisons and those are the members of our team who visit all the hospitals in our state and the um, the ambulatory surgical facilities, et cetera, um, or they might contact a member of our board of directors um, who meet monthly in Harrisburg. Um, we've had individuals come to our um, public meetings that are held once a month uh, just outside Harrisburg. Um, So through various means, we've had individuals contact us. It isn't very often, but in this case, um, you know, Pam, I believe, contacted a member of our board and, you know, enough of us at the authority thought that this was concerning enough to go into our reports and see and kind of search for stories that matched to see if it was a widespread concern or if this was just something isolated. and you know, we found enough examples of events that were similar that we thought it was worth talking about in our recent analysis.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how does it happen?
1: The um, events such a, similar to what happened with Pam's yes. father. Yes.
0: H- how is it that uh, uh, mm-hmm. doctors or uh, nurses, anyone in a in a healthcare uh, setting, uh, do not um, identify patients with dementia?
1: Well, I think you can imagine probably if you have friends or family members that have been affected by any kind of uh, dementia, cognitive impairment. A uh, Dementia has a very insidious slow onset over many years. And um, if the person is healthy and they're at home and they're in a familiar environment, you may not notice the signs of dementia for a very long time. Um, it, It's when that person has deficits in the area of memory and language and communication and then finally isn't able to conduct what we call the activities of daily living independently, and that would be things like managing your medications or balancing your checkbook. When that person has these cognitive deficits and then is unable to carry out these functions by themselves without assistance, that's when they meet the criteria for a definition of um, dementia. So if... Uh, healthcare providers are not screening for cognitive impairment when the patient comes to their office or when they're admitted to the hospital. They can miss it. And like I said earlier, if somebody is highly educated, you know, working professional most of their lives, has been relatively healthy and functional in their home environment. Um, they can come in and they can totally, you know, fool you. So unless you're looking for it and using a screening tool, you are going to miss it. Anyone would miss it. And um, a lot of times, patients and their family members themselves are surprised when a patient is screened and found to have um, dementia or some form of cognitive impairment. And again, it's when they're out of their familiar environment. They're usually in the hospital for some other health, you know, reason. Um, And the diagnosis can come as a shock even to the patient and their family members.
0: In your analysis, you have a heading called five categories. Explain the five categories.
1: Well, um, I mentioned that we searched our database to see if we could find events similar to what Pam described. Um, So we were trying to find events where there was a patient who had dementia or probably had dementia who was in our hospitals, any hospital in Pennsylvania, and um, the event narrative described a situation where that diagnosis was missed or or missed by any member of the team. So we looked for themes in what was happening in those 63 events. And what we found was beginning, if you think of an episode of care from the time the patient is admitted to the hospital until the time the patient is discharged, we try to put these events in order. So the, the first event in the theme would be a failure to recognize pre-existing dementia. So someone has dementia, they come to your hospital or they come to your office, and a screening isn't done, and right there, there's a failure to recognize the patient even has dementia to begin with. And then the second failure mode occurs when, okay, you know the patient has dementia, but you have failed to assess their competence and their decision-making ability. As I said earlier, just because a patient has dementia, especially in the early stages, it doesn't mean they can't make decisions. So somebody has to formally assess, you know, what is their capacity to understand their medical information and to make choices? You know, how much can we rely on this person to make decisions about their own care? So, So our events showed there was a failure to do that, to stop and assess the patient. Then the third failure mode occurred when we knew the patient had dementia and we knew they couldn't make decisions for themselves but the team failed to identify someone else who can make that decision for them or who could provide reliable information. So this person's here. We know they have a problem. We're not trusting the information. You have to take the next step and identify somebody. You know, it might not be a family member. It could be a friend. It has to be somebody who knows the person well and then take the next step and try to formalize um, some kind of an agreement, especially if they don't have a living will or an advance directive that, tells you which person makes decisions for them, that process has got to be addressed. So there's a failure to do that, a failure to find that person who can give you reliable information or who can make decisions if necessary for the patient. And then the last failure mode is, um, actually, I'm sorry, it's a fourth failure mode, not the last. The fourth of these five is, okay, we, we know all this. We know they have dementia. We don't trust their information. We have identified somebody who is a reliable historian or who can make decisions, but then they're in the hospital, decision needs to be made, or information needs to be gathered, and the person isn't contacted. So that would be the examples I was sharing with you earlier where, you know, they know the patient has issues, but they've gone ahead and obtained consent and started to send them down for some kind of a procedure, and someone stops the line and says, whoa, wait a minute, this person has someone else we were supposed to contact, um, and, and they failed to do that. And then the last failure mode would be, you know, all of this has been done. We know they have dementia. We know who the decision maker is, et cetera. But that isn't communicated to every member of the team. And you can see how that happens really easily today in hospitals when um, there's not one physician or one nurse who cares for the patient over a long period of time consistently who really knows the patient well. If you have different physicians and different members of the team and different nurses working different shifts and you don't have continuity in the people providing care, you can see how this message of, okay, this is the person's cognitive ability, these are the decisions they can make for themselves, these are the decisions they can't make, this is who you need to contact. You can see how that information can get lost between care providers. Um, so that's the failure to communicate all this information to every member of the team.
0: Mm. Doesn't today, today's technology help to avoid these kind of mistakes?
1: Yes, it should. Um, and in many hospitals with electronic health records, they have developed systems where there's one um, smart board usually, some kind of a video display up at a centralized station on the unit that will flag patients for various reasons. So you might have a flag if the patient's at risk to fall or some kind of flag if the patient is um, on isolation precautions or, you know, there's flags for various things. So um, you know, beyond the electronic healthcare system, there's the old-fashioned system of just using signs and wristbands, which I know is something that Pam had talked to me about, the wristbands we use these things to communicate risk for various things in the hospital. Um, but back to the electronic healthcare care record, there, there's quite a lot of information right now, and you can imagine that there's flags for um, medications that create a high risk for adverse events. There's um, alerts that come to the providers for, you know, allergies and caution in using certain medications. Um, there there is also a phenomenon called alert fatigue right now. So we recognize that just by creating more alerts, we may not solve the problem because right now there's so many alerts and flags flashing from these electronic health care records that sometimes that can be a problem in and of itself. So we do need to be creative in finding a solution to this and making sure that information gets communicated and that no one just Misses
0: it. Well, I wanted to transition to the discussion about wristbands because, as you said, uh, Pam Tripaldi, that was her suggestion. And, uh, you know, people associate uh, Alzheimer's disease with the, the color purple. See, she had suggested wristbands that, that were purple. But as you have just kind of mentioned, you're not exactly sold on that idea. Why not?
1: Well, In Pennsylvania, you asked earlier if um, sometimes the authority may even investigate um, or see if we're having problems based on the report of one single event. Well, it just so happens that early in the history of the authority, there was one single event that happened with a wristband that really um, could have had disastrous results, and that was um, a nurse working in one hospital who worked in several hospitals was working one day and misunderstood the color of a patient's wristband. Now, I don't remember every detail of this story, but I, you know, I believe the color um, meant do not resuscitate in one of her hospitals, and it meant something like a, pa- a medication allergy in the other hospital. So by misunderstanding that color, the nurse believed the patient was a do not resuscitate patient. So if that patient had a cardiac arrest, that person wouldn't have been resuscitated, and that would have been you know, a huge error. So based on that alone, the authorities started to look at colored wristbands used in all of our hospitals across the state, and we found that there were so many wristbands being used in so many different colors. Um... So the authority's recommendation was that hospitals should standardize that between hospitals and really limit the number of bracelets being used.
0: Now, another suggestion, and actually it's been used in some other places, was to put a sticker on the admission wristband as when the patient comes in rather than a fully colored wristband, just a a little circle round sticker that goes on it. What about that?
1: Well, that is an idea that started with Gary LeBlanc. He is an individual down in Florida. I'm sorry, I just need to switch my phone here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Gary LeBlanc is um, a journalist down in Florida whose uh, father, I believe, had dementia. And just like Pam, he was an advocate who was out there talking about his concerns as a caregiver. And, um he developed this program called the Dementia Wristband Project, and uh, he started in the hospital down there in Florida where his father had been a patient. And uh, he worked with the staff and also with emergency first responders and you know emergency fire personnel in the area so that all of them, and the local Alzheimer's chapter down there, and said, you know, this is a problem, we need to make sure everyone knows how to screen for dementia and everyone knows how to care for these patients to keep them safe in the hospital. So together with all those other team members, they went through a variety of um, ideas for how to bring awareness to the issue and identify these patients in the hospital. So he, too, wanted to start with a purple wristband, but after you know talking to this large group of people, they decided that, again, that would be confused with do not resuscitate because this um, idea of standardizing wristband colors uh, that started in Pennsylvania has gone nationwide. So there are many groups across this nation that have um, suggested that hospitals standardize these colors. Anyway, so he wanted to avoid the use of the purple wristband as well, and he found this purple angel symbol that was being used over in the U.K. It wasn't being used in hospitals, but it was being used uh, in the community to designate businesses that were um, dementia-friendly. There was was a man over in the U.K. who had an early diagnosis of dementia, and he worked with organizations in his community to, to bring awareness to dementia and to make sure there were businesses who knew how to interact appropriately with these people with dementia. For instance, he wouldn't want um, you know businesses to take advantage of these people with cognitive impairments. So anyway, he started using the purple angel logo to designate businesses in the UK that were friendly, you know safe for dementia patients and patients with other forms of cognitive impairment. So Gary in Florida said, you know, how about this purple angel logo? Let's start using that." So um, at the hospital in Florida where his pa- dad had been a patient, they started putting that sticker on the wristband of patients who screened positive for cognitive impairment. So uh, it's not just because of the sticker. I talked to one of the nursing directors at that hospital to ask her if she thought the sticker on the wristband is the thing that really improved care for their patients. She said, no, it's, it's education, it's raising awareness, it's the fact that every single patient age 65 and older gets screened for cognitive impairment when they come to the hospital. And, and yes, they do get that sticker, but it's a whole process.
0: Well, you probably just, uh, I think we can end our conversation on what you just mentioned because that kind of sounds like uh, the solution or at least one of the solutions here. Michelle File is the Senior Patient Safety Analyst with the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. Ms. File, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Pennsylvania State Geography Bee is scheduled for Friday at the State Museum in Harrisburg. Some of the brightest young people from throughout the state will be participating. But it won- when it comes to geography education in the K-12 through 12 grades, geography is often a forgotten subject. To talk about the bee and geography education, joining us today is Kristen Byers, Program Manager for the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geographic Education and the Pen- Pennsylvania State Level Coordinator for the National Geographic Bee. And also, Nicole Eshelman. She's a teacher at Manheim Township High School and an active member of the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geographic Education. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good morning.
0: If you have a question about geography, geographic education, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Kristen, I want to talk about the geography bee right off the bat. And I should mention that uh, I'm going to be one of the uh, moderators for the B, the final, so yes. it's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on today. Not only that, but because this is an important topic, but uh, talk about the B and what to expect on Friday.
2: All right. Well, first of all, we're thrilled that you're ha- we're having you as our final round moderator. That's going to be very exciting. The B is uh, sponsored by National Geographic, and it really begins back in the fall. Schools all across Pennsylvania are uh, register their school to host a school-wide B. The winners from those Bs, those Bs are uh, they take place in January, and the winners uh, take an online test that National Geographic produces, and the top scorers from that online test are invited. Generally, about 100 students, the top 100 students are invited to come to the state B, which is held always the last Friday in March, unless that happens to be Good Friday, which it was this year. So this year, it's on April 1st. They are invited to come to the State Museum in Harrisburg, and uh, we have a uh, an exciting competition where they are uh, grilled, uh, given some very difficult questions, and the winner of that bee then gets to participate at the National Geographic Bee, which is held in Washington, D.C. This year it will be May 22nd through the 25th. An exciting this year... Um, In the past, the final round moderators for the National Bee have been Alex Trebek, Soledad O'Brien. This year we have a new moderator, Mo Rocca, who is uh, – he's on CBS Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood as a correspondent. And uh, he does a – I believe he has a cooking show maybe on the Food Network. He's kind of a – a little bit of a Renaissance man. Yes, he he's
0: often described as a comedian, but yes. uh, he has a lot of different talents.
2: Right. What
0: kind of questions? When you said, uh, when you described them as difficult, uh, without obviously I, you're not right. going out, highly you're,
2: confidential. That's <laughs> right. But
0: maybe some that uh, in the past. Yes. But what, what kind of questions? Actually, I brought
2: about? a few sample questions from that are um, actually on National Geographic's website, um, and they start out. Not quite as complicated in the no, beginning of preliminary that. rounds. Yes. You notice, yeah, I've been studying. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, well um, earl- some of the earlier questions are pretty basic. I can give you a- an example. Um, here's a preliminary wa- uh, round sample question. It says which state has a climate suitable for growing citrus fruits, California or Maine? Well, if you know your uh, climate and pencil uh, in uh, United States geography you understand that California would be much more suitable for citrus fruits
0: obviously that's not one of the more difficult ones. no that's an early
2: that's, one that's but remember, kind of a layup there these are fourth through eighth graders that are participating okay. in this bee. so right. um, and it's interesting when you see some of these little kids fourth graders and what they know I'm always amazed um, so yes it's uh, but then you know the questions do get more difficult Um Here's one. It says, which Canadian province produces more than half of the country's manufactured goods? So you have to understand um, the layout of of Canada. And specifically with relation, this question uh, deals with the fact that Ontario uh, is next to a lot of the Great Lakes. And so if you understand that, you recognize that Ontario would produce a lot of uh, more of uh, manufactured goods than, say, Saskatchewan or some of those more northern Mm -hmm. territories.
0: I, just, so. I was going to be my guest, by the way.
2: Well, you good. <laughs> good.
0: <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say guest. It's also the most populated. Uh, it province. is yeah. with Toronto.
2: Yes, right. it's it's right. much more populated.
0: Yeah. Well, that, those are a couple of examples, uh, and you mentioned how students get involved. Um, yes. You know, th- this is something that uh, when we talk about a bee, there are so many people think of the National Spelling Bee. I mean, mm-hmm. and and the Spelling Bee has gotten to a point where the finals are even on uh, ESPN. Right. Um, obviously, everyone needs to spell. What about geography? Why? Why is geography important?
2: Well, geography is important because it, I think young people need to have an understanding of geographic concepts so they can apply them to problem-solving. I mean, we're a global society. The world is shrinking. And um, we. It's, it's just really important to know and understand uh, how these concepts can help us in, in figuring out the relationship between uh, those locations and the people around them, the environment around them. That's really what the study of geography is. It's not just knowing where things are, but how those locations affect people and the environment um, and how we can uh, problem solve and, and uh you know, interact better with people around the world It's it's really critical
0: You know, I, the example I think of All the time is the Middle East
2: mm-hmm.
0: How geography plays such a part In the issues that the Middle Eastern countries are, are playing uh, the, you know, the issues that they're facing I should say, uh, you know, the borders with uh, Iraq and uh, or Excuse me, Afghanistan and mm-hmm. uh, Pakistan Iraq and Syria um, uh, Iraq and uh, Turkey And, you know, we hear about the uh, those countries every day, and geography has played such a role there. Uh, Nicole Eshelman, I want to turn to you as a uh, teacher of uh, geography. And by the way, do you teach geography itself, or does that uh, come under the heading of social studies, or just what?
3: Yeah, a lot of districts here in Pennsylvania do not have geography as a standalone course. So geography falls under the umbrella of social studies or often under the STEM umbrella, um, if it's more of the science-related like physical studies of geography. So I do not teach a standalone geography course, and many of the the districts in our state do not. Um, But geography is definitely a part of the courses that I teach from AP US history up to global perspectives. I teach 11th and 12th grade students. Really, a big challenge is helping them to understand it's not just knowing where places are. Um, I think that there's a disproportionate focus in a lot of studies, um, especially in geography, of just events and places and individuals, but it's more about how and why and why did it happen there and forming these deeper connections that really will help students have a lasting understanding of meaningful connections as they're studying geography infused within the rest of their curriculum. We'll give them an example. Yeah, so recently I did a project with my 12th grade Global Perspective students, and that course is really focused on current events and understanding the world around us. So there is no textbook like the daily newspaper is our, our textbook. Um, so in understanding the civil war in Syria and um, seeing why refugees are, are fleeing out of the country um, really is a topic that is so foreign to them, um, they think that oftentimes even you know educated and well intentioned students think, well this is happening on the other side of the planet. We're not connected. We don't feel the impact of that, um, and they don't realize really how we are so interconnected. Uh, so helping them understand the global issues and developing an empathy for those is important. Um, so not only did we study you know why there is a civil war in Syria and the twenty plus groups of people that are trying to vie for control. We looked at those push and pull factors of why those refugees would be fleeing and coming to the United States. And in this study, they were able to map them on these large tabletop maps that National Geographic offers free on their website. So they could do this in groups and work together. And they actually looked at refugee stories to plot those on the maps of plotting out the challenges that their families overcame. And what I found so powerful in our class uh, was that in in two sections um, that I teach, I've had three different refugees that came from the Middle East, from um, Iraq and from Syria, that shared their story. And as they shared their story of family members being scattered all across the planet um, to find safety, of you know having threats to their families, of, of violence or death, of overcoming those challenges really gave my class such an understanding of what these, these barriers are to overcome for the refugees' families, and then this understanding of what they can do to help. Um, so a, a, a very diverse issue of whether refugees should be accepted into Pennsylvania or into our country or not. Um, regardless, they were very involved in what they can do to help out as students by participating in World Refugee Day, by reaching out to the students in our school. And so it was more than just the very basic level of learning where is Syria, but building on to that of why it matters and how we can help and how we can be you know, decision makers that will impact our future in a better way.
0: Well, you left a class behind today. I'm I'm not saying that in a negative way. But what I am saying is that your class is on the line right now. Ethan is in uh, Mannheim. Ethan, you're on the air. Hi, Ethan.
1: Hi, Hi, Mrs. Eshelman. Hi.
2: (laughs) Um, We had a question, a geography question. We were wondering how you got interested in geography.
3: I had a a bunch of amazing role models that really positively impacted my life. And my goodness, guys, you are making me cry. (laughs) Uh, From my parents to teachers to professors, um, really inspired me to look at the world and to figure out how I can positively impact that. I hope as a teacher that even in a very small way, um, that I am able to help you guys look at the world and to understand it as it is around you and as you take part in being those leaders of the world. So uh, a lot of people positively impacted me. Um, and to be honest, in high school, I don't know if I really truly understood what geography was. I, I'm hoping with changing of legislation that geography, as it is a core subject, will be focused on more. Um, but it wasn't until I sat in my first geography class in college, I was like, oh, this is this is the song of my heart. This is understanding the world around me and and wanting to study in it and deeper and to and to grow in that field.
0: So, Ethan, is the whole the whole class is listening to the program today?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Uh, ask the class what's their biggest geography question. Um, tell <laughs> tell them you have to come to a consensus pretty quickly here.
1: <laughs> um. um Uh, Should
3: geography be its own class, do you think, in high school? So
2: what?
0: Okay, all right. I'm going to let you guys go and have Mrs. Eshelman answer your question. But I'm glad you called in and that you're listening today. It sounds like a holiday at the in, the, in your classroom today.
3: <laughs> They're an amazing group of students in the International Baccalaureate class. Um, they are just so bright um, and so dedicated to their studies, and so it, it has truly been a pleasure to teach them this year. Um, geography really should be a standalone subject, and in high schools, it often takes the place as an AP Human Geography course um, that focuses is on the human side of it, more the social studies side as opposed to the physical science side that is focused more so in science classes. Um, So there definitely is a place in the high school for it, Um, but I think more so of having geography at the lower levels in elementary and especially in middle school is where it really should be taught with higher frequency. All
0: right. So today, you know, I hate to bring up the negatives, but uh, I have to. There is so much emphasis on standardized tests and uh, some of those uh, core subjects, like reading, writing, math. Is geography part of that at all?
3: Mm-hmm. Geography is identified as a core subject, one of the nine, um, some of which you listed. But the problem is under No Child Left Behind, it was not a funded subject. So it wasn't really a focus of um, of the curriculum. And it also isn't a tested subject. So as students are preparing for rigorous standardized tests, a lot of the focus has to go on to the reading and the math and the writing, um, which is very crucial and is so important. And it's not to minimize any other discipline. Um, what is very exciting to see is that as No Child Left Behind has been replaced, we are seeing more of a focus on a more well-rounded education uh, that comes from the Every Student Succeeds Act that was just signed into law on December 10th. And so with that comes increased funding for a well-rounded education, which includes geography as a discipline, which is so exciting to see that we're going to be I hope, um, helping to prepare students to be better um, understanding, better in cultural issues, foreign language, being able to solve complex problems and assist in organizational planning and operations with geography-related technologies. Um, Hopefully, they'll be able to focus on global affairs and whether that would be economic or political or cultural. And especially since we are seeing a greater demand in geography-related fields and disciplines, that is a fast-growing field. Um, that is really going to be something that we need to prepare you students mean, to you're do. You're talking about careers, right? Careers, What yes. kind of careers in geography?
2: Well, it's interesting because that the irony is that we, we don't have geography incorporated as much into the classroom, and yet, this is a statistic from the Department of Labor, employment of specialists in geography or geographers is projected to grow 29% from 2012 to 2022. So we're talking about, I think they're mostly... Uh, Thinking GIS, geographic information systems, and, and incorporating GPS, but digital map making, cartography. You know, when I was in college, I took a cartography course, and it was pen and ink cartography. It was, when I created a map, it was like a work of art when I was done. But now maps are created using GIS, and there are jobs galore using this technology, but uh, being able to do GIS involves a, a basic understanding of geographic skills. But when kids go to study that, they're coming to college, and they they don't even have a foundation in geography.
0: A report uh, from the Government Accountab- Accountability Office, the GAO, um, they found that uh, half of social studies teachers, now this is half of social studies teachers, spend 10% or less of their time on geography. Now, The only thing I have to base this on is my own education, my children's education. That doesn't sound like a whole lot. And is that, I mean, that sounds like half the school districts in this country.
2: Mm -hmm. I think part of that is that there's a misconception, misperception about what geography is. I think people uh, think that geography is basically memorizing places on a map. And that's it. And so when teachers, and teachers are, are not often equipped to uh, teach geography, they haven't been taught well. And so, you know, they think to incorporate geography into their classroom means doing map quizzes, having students memorize places, and that's it. And so that may be what students are getting in relation to geography. And um, a
0: lot of those studies, there was another study that showed that uh, 75% of American students scored less than prof- proficient on geography. And again, just what uh, Nicole was saying about uh, knowing what's going on around the world. We obviously are in a global economy, but uh, there are so many other factors of how we're impacted here in the United States by what happens around the world. That sounds like something that, uh, you know, when educators, the people who come up with curriculums and uh, decide what's important should take a look at and say 75% less than proficient, we have an issue.
3: Mm And that was identified in the National Assessment for Educational Progress or the NAEP uh, Geography Report. And that statistic actually uh, was from the 2014 assessment of eighth graders. And we found, looking back throughout the data, that the average scores nationwide has remained below proficient for 20 years. And so that's unfortunate when you look back um, to even in 2006, the Roper survey that was published by National Geographic um, said that three out of 10 Americans couldn't even locate the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Um, And that is just a startling statistic that, overall, 41% of questions were answered correctly by Americans, um, and in Sweden it was 89%.
0: I've seen it even firsthand. I've seen people get on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and assign two signs. One says Philadelphia, one says Pittsburgh, and they don't know which way to go because they're not figuring out, oh, Philadelphia is east, Pittsburgh is west. Um, I carry a map in my car. Okay. I also have a GPS. People make fun of me for carrying a map, unfolding it, looking at it before I even put something in the, in the GPS. Should everyone be able to read a map?
3: Absolutely. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I, I, I mean, I have a GPS on my phone. I actually used it to get here. Map. Just <laughs>
0: Why did you use the
3: map?
2: I did. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but, but I also have a mental map of where this place is in relation to my home. Right. I knew I was going to be going north, <laughs> uh, traveling north, um, northeast. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think everyone needs to be able to, to read a map and to understand to have a spatial concept of where they are in relation to other places and where they're going, we become we do become very dependent on our technology, and then when it fails us, you know people people are lost. They they don't even have a sense of which way to go.
0: Yeah, technology is a great thing. It's, but it's a
2: double edged sword.
0: That, well, see, let's talk about that. Uh, how is it a double edged sword?
2: Well, um, we can become so dependent on it that we we turn our brains off. Uh, we we rely on that technology, whether it's. Whether it's a, a GPS or a calculator, or I mean, or a computer, um, I I have heard. In fact, I've heard people close to me who say, "Well, I don't. I can Google where such and such a place is, and um, and find out." But I I think when in uh, regards to geography, um, having a mental map is very important for us to be connected to the world around us. You know, when we're watching the news. And we hear that a bomb went off in Brussels. If you don't have a, a, a mental idea of where Brussels is, you're already disconnected. Um, you you and and when we're not connected, we don't often we don't care. And so um, I think it might as well be Mars for some young people. They in mean, you know, Brussels. Is, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. right.
0: We only have about a minute left, and uh, I think that we've covered a lot of territory and a lot of good points. And I hope that uh, uh, everyone thinks about the, what we had to say about geography and encourage young people to uh, to uh, get more interested in it, and uh, many of the reasons you mentioned. But, uh, Kristen, uh, about 30 seconds or less, just kind of uh, summarize what uh, to look forward to. And is, Are spectators able to see uh, the Geography Bee Friday?
2: Yes. On Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock will be the final round, and Scott, you will be our final round moderator. And uh, it is at the State Museum in Harrisburg, and it is open to the public. You would just have to purchase a ticket to go to the museum, but then you'd be able to Come to the auditorium and see the final 10. There will be 102 students coming and participating at preliminary rounds earlier in the day, but 10, it'll get whittled down to 10, and at 3 o'clock... Uh, We'll have the final round, and it is open to the public.
0: Kristen Byers is the program manager for the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geographic Education. She's also the Pennsylvania State-Level Coordinator for the National Geographic Bee. And Nicole Eshelman is a teacher at Mannheim Township High School and an active member of the Pennsylvania Alliance for Geographic Education. Thank you very much for being with us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: We will talk to you tomorrow.